0: This is a Momentum Media production.
1: Nerd alert! Property nerds—the <laughs> home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines, and trends. Hey, hey! This is your host Arjun Paliwal of Investigate Buyers Agency, and welcome to another episode of the Property Nerds. Today, I'm actually not joined by Lee. However, we do have a a guest in the house today, and this is a very very special episode because we love it when you know we nerd out on the show, but we love it even more when we have some guests jump on and nerd out with us. And today's special guest is none other than Nerida Connorsby. Now, Nerida comes from the background of a role where she has currently the chief economist at Ray White, and. She is doing some spectacular things there. And I would encourage you to follow Nerida on LinkedIn. If you're not already tuned into some of her content, you'll get tremendous value, especially from the the greater Ray White analytics coming through as well. They've definitely turned a page in a great way from transactional service relationships, that sort of stuff, to now really being absolute thought leaders in the space of real estate. And no doubt Nerida and her greater team play a key part in all this. Now, Not only from her role currently as Chief Economist at Ray White, Nerida actually also comes from a role as a former Chief Economist at the REA Group. And for those not familiar, the REA Group is realestate.com.au. And prior to that, Nerida was actually the former National Director of Research at Colliers International. So she definitely knows what she's talking about, and we go into a few key things. And one of my favorite things from the viewpoint of Nerida's analysis on property is that whilst she, yes, has to commentate on national data points often, similarly to other economists, it's something that she also is very conscious of in terms of understanding that there are different cities that operate in different ways. and It's very much like an actual real estate on the ground person thinks, however, but also combining it with her research and national understanding of data. So This is a very unique approach because many economists, unfortunately, get lost at the national picture only without Really breaking things down to different markets, doing different things. And that's how you should be thinking about it from your perspective of investing. Now, Nerida and I actually go a fair bit back. I actually met her many years ago. She was speaking as part of an expert industry panel on the topic of the future of housing. And this was hosted by General Assembly or GA. And I was very fortunate to moderate the panel and and speak with her and a few others as well on that panel of the future of housing. And since then, I've been following along Nerida very, very closely in terms of what content she shares and the value she brings. So we're going to go through things like the house price recovery that we're seeing in many core areas, even before interest rate rises started to pause or potentially turn around, some green shoots where they're popping up things like inflation and interest rates and really breaking that down a little bit more, as well as the rental crisis. And of course, if you stay to the end, I mention again that you're going to be able to hear from Nerida on some of the indicators she loves to look at. So from one nerd to the another, thank you Nerida for providing us a lot of value on this show and uh, tune in. Here we go. Nerida, thank you so much for joining us. and uh, We've got a jam-packed episode for today with regards to a few interesting trends that are going on. Plus, for those staying to the end, we've got some... uh, Not for those staying, we want you to stay to the end, actually, because uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that we'll go through regarding Nerida's favorite indicators, trends, or data points, whatever you want to call them with regards to short-term, medium-term, and even long-term investing. So please do stay right to the end so you can catch those. But Nerida, I guess to start off with and just get into it, the house price recovery we've seen has definitely kicked off this first quarter of the year and, and for some cities even late last year. But I guess when you see this turnaround happening, what are some of the causes in your opinion? Because we've seen rate rise after rate rise and technically it hasn't come back down the interest rate. So something new is happening. would love to get your thoughts on this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. I think it probably the recovery did start a lot sooner than many people expected. I mean, we did have people saying we were going to see a thirty percent price fall you know, less than you know six months ago, but clearly it has been far less than that, and things started to turn around at the end of last year. So, as he said, interest rates are, are obviously a, a big driver of, of what drove that prices down last year but property markets are far more complicated than that and are certainly driven by a lot of other factors and and what has been happening is that even though cost of finance has gone up it's more difficult to get finance at the same time population is growing very very quickly in australia we've seen four hundred thousand additional people over the past 12 months We do have a construction crisis, uh, so that is increasing the cost of building new homes. A lot of people who may have gone into new homes have now had to look at the established market, and then the established market just hasn't had much available. So people haven't been selling, and so the market has been a little bit stuck. From what we can see, the market that is recovering the quickest is Sydney. Sydney saw the biggest falls last year, and it has seen the biggest increases this year. But pretty much everywhere around Australia is now showing signs of recovery, which, you know, is good news. I think for a lot of people, it does um, it does bring a bit of confidence back into for many households. At the same time, it doesn't really solve one of the biggest challenges we have in Australia with regards to affordability.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a, a couple of key takeouts I get from there, because what it sounds like is if we took the statement of interest rates and put that to the side for just a moment it sounds like many of the same conditions from what we went into in the pandemic shifts and all the disruptions are almost a straight line carrying on if you were to remove that interest rate component because you talk about some of the things where you know supply shortfalls population now coming back in and then even some of the construction constraints that are happening so i guess for people listening it just shows the importance of data when it's so many different things that one needs to consider in property investing and not the typical hey, this one thing is changing and now therefore everything changes. But it does show the importance what I've picked up over the last year of what we call statistical weighting, right? One thing was one thing only, but it ended up being a fairly large difference point to how much lending take-up happened, how much prices changed or stopped the momentum in some cities. It was a very interesting year for 2022 and appreciate Sydney as well. You've mentioned standing out. Are there any particular, I guess, pockets of Sydney? Would there be by price point? That we start to see a lot more change happening than not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it does seem to be that the most expensive suburbs are recovering the quickest. And you have a look at somewhere like Mossman. I think it lost about five hundred thousand dollars from its median last year. It's up, I think, around one hundred and eighty thousand. So you know, certain still not back to where it was last year. Obviously, there's still quite a way to go, but. For now, it does seem to be that it is those eastern suburbs, lower North Shore, upper North Shore, northern beaches areas that are recovering the quickest. But actually, in Sydney, it is interesting to see that all areas are seeing price growth again, and um, not year on year, obviously, but price growth from December. That the areas that are, that are moving the slowest are high development areas, places like Box Hill in northwestern Sydney. But even those areas are starting to see some increases. So it is It is pretty broad in terms of what we're seeing in Sydney in terms of a recovery.
1: For those that got a heart attack on that $500,000 statement, I think the important thing is to sit down on an auction in Mosman and it only takes six seconds for it to move up $500,000 in the bidding environment as well. It's very much a a unique part of the north side of Sydney that has a lot of activity in that too at, at some pretty big dollar price ranges. And fair call on the land and some of the, I guess, areas with new developments narrative because naturally with what we're hearing in, across the media and different stories from you know, builders that are having a little bit tougher, I think there's a little bit more uncertainty in some consumers' minds, which actually leads me to the next point. We've talked about a few green shoots popping up in places like Sydney and some of the recovery happening. We also want to go into things like inflation and interest rates because they played a key part of some of the thoughts and changes in our, I guess, financial markets over the last 12 months and. In fact, we've actually seen a decline in inflation and even what now is a pause in interest rate hikes. The thing that comes to mind is where to from here? Because we've just had this huge steep curve, if not the steepest ever, in terms of some of its interest rate rises. And now we've taken a pause, taken a breather, as well as some decline in, in- inflation showing.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's been so fascinating to watch it. I mean, at the start of or well, the end of 2021, it was, you know, there's still a lot of talk that interest rates wouldn't be increasing for quite some time. And then of course we did have that inflation rate that went up very rapidly and, and took quite some time or well, is taking quite some time to come back. So in terms of where interest rates are headed, uh at this point it is, I mean, I suppose, I suppose there's there's a few ways you can you can look at interest rates or or try and predict where they're going to go. You can you know, make a call based on your experience, or you know, based on what you hear on the news. You can look at some data points and say, oh, you know, well that's doing that, and so this will do that. Or you can build a model, and you can you know, make do a far more statistical analysis to try and work it out. Or alternatively, the fourth way is to just track what the market's doing, and it's been quite interesting looking at the fourth way because. The ASX have an interest rate, uh, cash rate futures index, which people invest in and they hedge their bets as to where where rates are going to go. And it's been quite fascinating to watch that because every month you can get a a gauge as to where the market thinks uh, the RBA will go with interest rates, whether they'll hold increase, decrease but they also provide a yield curve which does um, give a bit of a prediction as to what the markets think will happen to interest rates. So a month ago, that cash rate futures index was predicting three more rate rises. Last week, it changed to no more rate rises and potential cut within the next couple of months. So, At this point, with the way interest rates are, with what's happening in the global economy, with what's happening in the Australian economy, it does look like interest rates are either at peak or close to peak and it's looking increasingly likely that interest rates will start to trend downwards. But, you know, obviously things can change very quickly and I think the challenges with things like inflation is, is that there's still some heavy drivers of inflation. Construction costs do remain very high. Oil prices fell back in March, but then OPEC has decided to cut production and so they're going to shoot up again. Uh, so there's, there's still a lot of moving pieces which could potentially change the outlook. But sitting here today, on what date are we? We're on the 12th of April. It is it is looking like we are very close to peak and ideally we'll start to see those pretty high from you know from historical standards or at least for the last three years the like interest rates start to come down a bit.
1: Yeah, and speaking to some of those indicators, There might be a few economics newbies listening in and uh, those even with more of a deeper understanding tuning in too, I guess would love to hear from you in terms of if you had say two to three data sets when it comes to understanding that direction, you've mentioned a few here today, what would be some of the best ones to really comprehend inflation that little bit better so people can start to see where things are headed or where they might be headed based on some of the core data sets that you like to look at when interpreting inflation?
0: Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely talk about inflation. So at the moment, I mean, inflation is made up of price movements of a basket of goods and that basket of goods are things that impact households. So it includes rent, it includes food, clothing, travel, It includes the construction of a new home. It doesn't include mortgage payments because there's a bit of a kind of circular thing happening there, but it does include the construction of a new home. And basically, uh, sorry, it also includes fuel prices, the big one, transport, all those things. So basically what happened Early on, when interest rates started to rise, it was very much driven by rising fuel prices, particularly the war in Ukraine led to quite a sharp increase in fuel prices. It also was led fairly early on by block supply chains. So, shipping costs were really, really high in in June last year. So, that really made the cost of goods very expensive. So, back then, back last year, what we saw is those two price. Or oh, the price aspects, they really started to shoot up. They've come back down, but what we've seen take place are rent. Rents have gone up a lot. And also construction costs have, have increased at their highest record, highest levels ever recorded. So, so that's what makes it not difficult to, to work out what's happening with inflation, but there are different aspects that do change over time. And, and what we've found this cycle is that. Inflation was always going to go up following COVID once people got back out there and started spending and everyone knew what, you know, that was going to happen. But things like the war in Ukraine, the fact that China remained under lockdown far longer, um, supply chains took a long time to become unblocked. Those things led to this much higher inflationary environment, which is why interest rates had to go up to try and slow everything down and get inflation under control.
1: Yeah. And on those data points and those events that have come through, something I've recently seen, and thanks to following you on LinkedIn and anyone tuning in, please do connect and follow Nerida on LinkedIn. A lot of great insights from the Ray White team and her greater economics team there sharing a lot of interesting data. But retail spending was another one that seems to be calming down. And I guess in that environment, I also like to look at household savings because they kind of you know move close to the line with each other when you start to see that household savings dip. I guess that was a core part of with all these interest rate rises, people getting back to a bit of normal spending and enjoying life a little bit. That's come down a fair bit from those COVID peaks, right? So it naturally starts to make sense that as those buffers start to come down and spending and savings have started to work against each other that you know we may reach a peak in one of those items. But one thing I found that was a vicious cycle starting to show and emerge was that component of rent that you talked about, because it plays such a key part in the basket. However, the intended effect of interest rate rises and then slow on an in investor lending and how finance data connects with you know interest rate data in terms of its assessment setting, all of a sudden we get into the cycle of one caused by the other And it just keeps continuing, right? I mean, do you have some thoughts on what we're seeing in the rental markets? Because right now we are clearly have not slowed down from that crisis. I mean, there are some upticks in some locations for vacancy rates, but population growth was, I guess, non-existent from overseas during COVID. And some felt that was going to impact housing markets, but now population's booming. It wasn't going to impact housing markets and now population's booming. And it's obviously mentioned as a core driver for houses, but we're seeing its effects show for rental markets and that seems to keep pushing up in the inflation basket doesn't it so what are your thoughts on i guess this rental crisis that we're seeing right now
0: yeah i mean it's a huge problem i mean we we were seeing um in some places pretty strong i mean actually rental growth was quite strong during the pandemic we had that early stage where it you know didn't move much and we had that six month moratorium moratorium on evictions for example so that initial period obviously rental markets were were pretty stable or declining is quite different but once you know we got through the early pandemic we did see the uh, rents start to rise and as you said it was surprising because Australia was losing people to overseas but there seemed to be a few things going on there seemed to be this population movement which to places like Southeast Queensland really early on started to put a lot of pressure on rents. Uh, and then we were also seeing wealth creation, so people were saving more money, had more money to spend, not just on clothing and houses, but also on rents. And then also just um, household formation, so more people leaving home or more people, you know, moving out of share houses. So we started to see this rental growth build through the pandemic, but um, once population growth started back again, it really accelerated and you know, we've got Australia's growing by 400,000 people you know, we're needing roughly, you know, at least Massive, by the way.
1: it's huge.
0: (laughs) It is massive. And, you know, if you think like the average household size is, you know, what, 2.2, 2.4, depending on where you are, it doesn't mean we do need a lot more homes every year to accommodate all these people. A common, you know, criticism is to say, or not a common comment, is to say, well, you know, we should stop migration. But then at the same time, we've got to 50 year low unemployment rate we can't get enough staff to build all sorts of jobs whether they're in aged care or whether they're in hospitality or in agriculture or in construction you know we do need more people so there's this real challenge at the moment that australia needs more people because we need more workers but we don't have enough homes and it's really hard to be able to solve that the other problem too is that you know around 90 percent of Rental properties are owned by mum and dad investors, and mum and dad investors aren't particularly active at the moment because interest rates are so high. So they're not buying much, so there's not many new rental properties. And then the construction sector is really struggling because they need staff. So they need all these people, but they just can't get enough staff. So they're not producing as many homes as we need either. So yeah, there's just a, a lot of problems that will take quite some time to unravel, but I think one of the challenges that has been with regards to rental properties is that for quite some time, investors have been really treated as a bad guys that, you know, things like negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions, all of those things were were going to be saved out, you know, by Labor a few elections ago. So, you know, those, if that had happened, you know, it would have been a, a completely more disastrous position than we are now. But the, yeah, the rental problem is something that that does need to be resolved, but it's not an easy fix, and it's certainly not a quick fix.
1: Yeah, there's some interesting forces at play, especially with how much population growth is coming through. One of the things that makes me think of Nerida, as you say this all, is that you know demand and supply is truly a seesaw, and I think when we reflect back in that last sort of five to ten years, there's been so much intervention on this seesaw instead of letting markets sometimes do their thing. And I know that seems crazy just to say, I'll just let it do its thing. But the truth is, I find in many examples of let the market do its thing, it tends to sort of self-regulate and solve things, especially as if we did see a lot of investors get attracted by the rental growth. And unfortunately, borrowing obviously is much harder right now, but if a lot of them did come back in that picture, that in a way, does aid itself and we're also seeing a lot of institutional money now mm-hmm. when it comes to things like build to rent which is in my opinion going to be huge for Australia not only from a perspective of helping very quickly at scale I wouldn't say quickly because things take time to build but at scale but also it reminds me of uh, just a recent trip I had o- over to the USA there was the amounts of large unit projects out there that are owned by a single entity or in some cases, even a very wealthy individual. But uh, when it comes to those large projects, they're like almost little towns within a town. They're just hugely decked out, fitted out. And that concept of renting isn't so much frowned upon in many places in the US because of how well they've made it or lifestyle that they've orientated there. Do you really see this as a, a huge opportunity for Australia? Because I do think that we're a little bit behind the rest of the the northern, I guess hemisphere in terms of this concept, but I do see a huge opportunity not only to aid this crisis but to make something more stable come into play as well. What are your thoughts on this build to rent space?
0: Yeah I mean it is definitely a growth area it only it's only accounts for less than one percent of Australian rental properties, which is quite different to the US where it's you know creeping up to about ten percent. So, It is very much in its infancy in Australia. In the US, it is the the biggest property asset class. There's been a lot of money made by large corporations in building build to rent. So it is seen as a quite a stable asset class and quite a profitable asset class. So there is a lot of money globally that's quite keen to invest in build to rent in Australia. There's a lot of big Australian developers that are, are quite keen to get in it. But it's it's slow going. I mean, again, coming back to you know the construction problems, it's not just you know the average person that's having to deal with challenges with construction. These these big companies are also struggling to get a lot of these projects off the ground. Um, also a lot of the t- taxation aspects are quite complicated. So you know, potentially. I mean, there probably will be quite a lot that goes on with taxation and build-to-rent and encouraging build-to-rent that will go on um, over the next year or so, I think. I mean, you only have to look at what the Queensland government announced recently, that their response to handling the rental crisis was correctly focused on supply, but they are focusing a lot on, on build-to-rent and they're also focusing a lot on trying to get more foreign money back into Queensland, which which is both good, but, you know, again, I, I don't think it's going to help immediately, unfortunately, because it will take some time for that money. It won't take some time for the money. The money can be getting, come to Australia pretty quickly, but, you know, getting sites ready, getting construction started, you know, it's at least in, generally an 18-month time period from, you know, idea to getting the project, you know, close to completion.
1: The rental crisis points you've raised have also made me think of two other key things. One was um, a gentleman by the name of Tom Panos. I have recently stumbled upon a little bit of content that he shared, and there was something that he shared which was very much in line with what we're seeing now. Was, I think it was, you marry the property, but you date the interest rate. And uh, when we talk about interest rate and rents, there are a lot of people who are thinking about cash flows today, which aren't as great as what they were a couple of years back, even with such great rental increases, which is, just shows the impacts of some of these interest rate rises, but the rental increases that we're seeing are likely, until this problem gets solved, going to continue to move to certain levels and grow. Obviously, they can't operate at 20%, 25% levels of increases every time because we then move into affordability, but with that increasing, it doesn't mean that interest rates forever increase like the same way rents do. They they, you know, move their ups and downs. So I found that very interesting, especially in line with some of the insights that we've gone through today. But the other thing that was fascinating in our review of data was that over the last 10 years, yes, we've had a very condensed level of growth in rents in the recent years, but they're actually pretty sluggish for most of the decade if we actually think about it. So we could kind of say that there's a bit of catch-up being played rather than this huge explosion creating a new wave of rental growth. Because it's just sometimes very hard to realize that since it's happened in such a small condensed period of time in terms of a window. So for investors thinking of that, just do think of your long-term at play here when it comes to you know 10-year averages and 20-year averages and how things return back to it. This is a clear example of the acute rental market conditions doing that. But then secondly, you marry the property and you date the interest rates. So Nerida, I know there's a lot of data we've talked about here, a lot of different trends. And Property is very noisy when it comes to data and trends. And I guess to wrap up, I'm interested to know that when we look at property markets in buckets of say, short-term, medium-term, and long-term, we might start off with the short-term, that sort of one to three-year picture. What are some of your favorite indicators or trends to look at? It could just be one, it could be a couple. We'd love to hear from you in terms of with that property investor hat on, what are some of your favorite data points and indicators to look at in the short-term?
0: Yeah. I think... I mean, it does depend where you are. So, if you have a look at a market like Sydney, you know, we can clearly see interest rates are a huge influence short term. That you know, you shoot up interest rates a you know a point or two, and Sydney house prices move in exactly the opposite direction. So, I think one to three years for Sydney, I think interest rates, Melbourne probably too, is a really key indicator. Perth, I'd be looking more at iron ore, that mining. You know, if we see boom time conditions in mining, Perth market does move very quickly with that, so quite a different indicator. And then when we have a look at really smaller regional towns, just understanding population growth is is really important. You know, you, you can have a in some small towns in Australia, you know, you add an extra, you know, add one extra major business that employs 100 people and that creates, you know, a demand for potentially 100 more homes and then suddenly prices start to rocket up pretty quickly so you know i think the drivers are quite different but they're the sorts of things that i look at with um, a one to three year time period
1: if we move into the medium term talking three to seven years and by the way for anyone wondering how we came up with the years uh this is just me and my beliefs of years uh, i don't want to throw it on Nerida to say that that's her belief of medium or long term it could be the same who knows but uh What's your thoughts on some of the medium-term indicators that people should look out for?
0: Yes, a medium-term for bigger cities, again, population growth and um, housing supply would be probably the things I'd look most closely at. And, And again, we can see it most clearly in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment that both those cities saw big drops with those interest rate rises last year. Both of those markets are recovering and at the moment, it does look like those, you know, fundamentals of property demand, population growth, and housing supply seem to be beating the increasing cost of finance. So, absolutely, population growth would be a key one, and and also just the number of homes being built, and, and and that general housing supply would be a would be a big factor.
1: And the last one, we're going to take it to the uh, good old long term, seven to ten plus years of investing foresight, or. Data that we're looking into. What are some of your favourite indicators to look at for long term decisions?
0: Yeah, so this is where it becomes really interesting because you do start to get to demographic change and gentrification is the big one. So a lot of areas uh, we have seen the most growth tend to be areas where you have a lot of older people moving out and younger people moving in. So you know, I always say to first time buyers, just always go where other first time buyers are going because. Often, you know, that energy created by first-time buyers does tend to improve housing. It tends to lead to better cafes and restaurants and better schools and, you know, because they have children. And so there's this, not necessarily gentrification, it can be that, but just this urban urban regeneration that takes place. And quite, you know, can think of a lot of examples where that's happened. If you have a look at places like the inner north of Melbourne, stretching out from probably, you know, Thornbury up to Preston, you've got lots of young families moving there. In Sydney, it seems to, you know, it, had, it was in the inner west, but now seems to be pushing south. So there's a real change. Gold Coast, Southern Gold Coast, is there's, there's this this gentrification an urban regeneration that's gone on. So I think that's part of it. And then the other one is around just these really long term trends that we see in Australia that. If you have a look at places over the last 20 years that have seen the most price growth, they do tend to be near water and that seems to be a push that doesn't seem to be abating. People want to be near water and they like beaches and they like rivers and they're sorts of things that people like. They also like really good public transport. So, you know, anywhere that's got a really good train line or a ferry or, you know, a, a tram or a light rail, that seems to be a driver. And also just good retailing and, and walkability and and those sorts of things. So, you know, a lot around livability and in places that undergo transformations that lead to that high level of livability do think just they appear to see this this far greater price growth in areas that lack that
1: appeal. Yeah, that's uh very helpful because it gives us this micro and macro picture. And it also just goes through things that Are very long term, but down to the short term as well when it comes to how we can look at property data. And the biggest thing I've taken out from hearing those, as well as just some of your insights on the show today, has been that there's never this one thing that can decide it all for property. And we need to be as holistic as possible. Nerida, thank you so much for your time today. I think the biggest call out and chatter I wanted to make today, as well, is not only some of the insights that you've shared, but just the transformation that I'm actually noticing from a you know following you on the socials following some of the things that ray white introduces um i can definitely see a shift in a very positive way from the company being like your typical real estate agency of transaction and service to now very much being a thought leader and someone who's out there to provide genuine insights and value as well so i can see that and no doubt that plays a big thanks to you and the role you're playing in that division and greater team as well so well done
0: thanks and thanks for having me it's been really great to
1: chat awesome thank you The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the company's mentioned.
0: Game over.